So we have been in Genesis, and we've been going verse by verse through the book of Genesis, and, and we've seen this story unfold of uh, God's love and God's mercy and God's plan for saving people. And it's, it started, you know, with Adam, and he told Adam, I, I know you sinned, but I'm going to take care of it. And he's continued that promise on. So we get to a chapter today in chapter 36 in Genesis that is simply Esau's family tree. And if you don't know who Esau is, we're going to tell you in just a minute. And so, um, but let's go ahead and pray and, and uh, get into the word of God. Jesus, we come to you and we thank you for every chapter in the word of God and every, every name that is put in there, even though we don't know even how to pronounce these names because they're, they're from a long time ago in another world and in another language. But Lord, uh, it's important that we understand why that they're there. And we understand your heart for these people. And, and God, they're in there so that we can know something about you. And Lord, I pray that you would make sense of the word of God for us today. Because we, uh, when we look at it with our own human eyes and our own human understanding, it is impossible to know the deep things of God. But by your spirit, we ask that you would give us a gift to understand what your word says. In your name we pray, amen. So Esau, well, let me start by saying the title of today's message is What is God's Election? What is God's Election? So such a light talk today, you know, not very heavy. Actually, if you know anything about Christianity, you know that throughout history there's been this massive debate between man's free will and God's predestination. And in that whole discussion, uh, there's been a lot of confusion. There's been people killed over it, uh, depending on the time that you lived in. And, uh, but I think if we look at God's word, we can just glean some truth. And that's my hope today, is that we can, we can really dive into what God's word says in Romans chapter 9 about this topic. But the reason why we're doing that today is because in our walk through the Bible, we get to Genesis chapter 36, where it's this family trek record of, of Esau. And, uh, and I have to ask myself when I get to a chapter like this, why is this chapter in the Bible? Because I don't care who all these names are. And, and we're not even going to read it today because it's a ton of names. So I'm going to point out a few things and you can go back and read it on your own. But if God hates this family and they all go to hell, why do I need to know them? What do you mean God hates this family? Yes, God has tell, tells us in many places in the word that Esau, he hates, but his twin brother, Jacob, he loves. If you remember Isaac and Rebekah, Rebekah was barren, but Isaac prayed for 20 years for Rebekah. And so Rebekah got pregnant and she had twins inside her. And one of them was Esau and one of them was Jacob. And as they were coming out, Esau came out first and he was all hairy, so they named him Esau. And Jacob came out second, grabbing onto the heel of Esau. And so they named Jacob Heel Snatcher or Jacob, which came to mean, or grabber, heel grabber. That's right. Thank you, John. It's my son. And uh, we, we have, uh, wow, lost my train of thought. <laughs> Esau comes out, Harry, J Jacob comes out. His name comes to mean deceiver. 
And, and this is where Jacob comes from and where Esau comes from. Jacob's name later changes to Israel, which means governed by God. Why do we need to know Esau's family? Why do we need to know what comes from Esau's life? Well, as Esau grows up, we see that Esau becomes this man's man. Obviously very hairy, doesn't wear deodorant at all. He's strong. He, he has no need for weak things. And he considers God and God's help to be weak. Why do I need God's help? I'm a man. I can hunt my deer. I can get my women. I am a man. I have no need for God's help. And that attitude, that heart, God foresaw that. He knew that that was who Esau was, that he did not need God's help. And in his foresight, God said, I hate that attitude. I, I want to help you, Esau, but I know that you're going to reject it because of your self-sufficiency. And Jacob, for all of his sinning, and he was a horrible sinner, just as bad as Esau, but for all of his sinning, he had this brokenness where he actually wanted God's help. He would receive God's help, and that turns out to be the key for all of us. Do we want God's help, or do we think we're okay without it? So we have this chapter, and we need to know about Esau's family because God's power is going to be seen in their life. Uh, we need to know how God deals with his enemies and how God is glorified in their story and how hopefully not to be a part of their rebellion, their lifelong, family-long, generation-long rebellion against accepting God's help. Because Esau's children, they, they, they follow Esau's path. Esau, he rejects God's call and his help, and he teaches his family to do the same. He has his wives and his children and their children after them. They always reject God's word, God's help, and God's grace. Esau, remember, he's this hairy twin brother of Jacob. And, and uh, Esau represents our flesh in the Bible. Whenever we see Esau or his descendants mentioned, there's a parallel in your life to your flesh, our pride, our self-sufficiency, our human nature. Every one of you has a hairy Esau living inside you. It sounds like some sick disease or parasite. And we see here that, that the reason why God hates Esau and is at war with Esau is because there's also a war with us and God. And our flesh, our human nature, our self-sufficiency and our pride is at war with God. Because it's the only thing in this entire universe that rejects God's rule. Your flesh is the only thing. All the mountains and rocks and trees and life in this world all fall in line with what God says to do. All the stars, all the universes, they spin the way he told them to. But your flesh is the only rebel. We have this giant human rebel alliance. Star Wars, coming soon. <laughs> so is it fair for God to hate our flesh? Or is he like Darth Vader, like some evil bad guy that just chooses an enemy and goes after them? 
After all, didn't he make our flesh? I mean, is it right for him to say, I hate your flesh? It is true that God did create us with the ability to choose right from wrong. But it was our choices that created this rebellious, sinful dependence on ourselves and abandoned the God who made us to love and to serve him. And now we're all stuck with this choice. Every human since Adam has been, been, been born with this internal sinfulness called the sin nature or the flesh that we have. And in Romans 3.23, we see very simply the Bible says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So Esau represents all people and their sinfulness, this, this twin, this evil hairy twin we have inside us. And our, our, our sinful dependency on ourselves. Esau represents that. So what does Jacob represent in this story or in the, in the story of our life? What does Jacob represent? It would be God's miraculous mercy or his grace. The fulfillment of a crazy promise that God makes to mankind that he started with Adam and then it continued through Noah, and then it gets to Abraham as we've been tracking through these people in Genesis. And with Abraham, God get called him and said, I'm going to promise you, Abraham, that I can save you. And Abraham, what? Believed God. And because Abraham believed God, he entered into this new life, this miraculous mercy, this grace. That's how this promise, so that promise goes from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob and then to Jacob's 12 sons and then they go down to Egypt. They're prisoners down there. They're slaves down there. They come back, all these, the, the judges and then the kings and then Jesus comes and fulfills this promise that God says, I'm gonna save you. I'm gonna take care of it. I'll take care of anything you need. Whatever you need, I'm gonna do it for you. And that promise when Jesus came, extends to the whole world. And that's how you and I end up here, is because of that promise that God made to Abraham, where he said, hey, I'm going to take you to this land. Do you believe me? I'm going to take care of you along the way. Do you believe me? I got I, Trust my word and my promises. That's how this works. Jacob is the aberration. You see, all men have Esau's blood. We have Esau's rebellion. And all men should be damned to hell. That's the truth. All men are wicked, but God steps in when he doesn't have to, and he makes this promise that enables some of us to get saved. So we're going to investigate today this dilemma of Jacob and Esau and God's choices with the help of our teacher, Paul. And that's why I had you turn to uh, Romans chapter 9, because we're actually going to go verse by verse through the entire chapter of Romans chapter 9, and we're going to see why and how God makes these choices that some people say, oh, this is really interesting. Does that mean God chooses to send some people to hell? Or that God chooses certain people to go to heaven and doesn't choose other people? How does this all work out? But I want us to remember the foundational thing. All men should go to hell. We all have this sinful rebellion built inside us. And Jacob is the aberration. Jacob is the exception. Because Jacob had something very special about him that I think you are going to be excited about 
when we leave here today. So the questions we're going to look at, who decides who gets saved? Who does God show mercy to? Why do some people get saved and, and, go, and uh, not go to hell? Does God choose to send some people to hell? If he does, is that wrong? All these are things we're going to consider today. Well, let's look at Romans chapter 9. And we'll read the first uh, five verses here. Paul says, I tell you the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. So Paul gives us this introduction and he introduces this topic of God's choices and our free will and who gets saved. He introduces it by saying, it breaks my heart. That's the first thing we learn about this thing is Paul had a broken heart when he considered who gets saved and who goes to hell. This is a big deal to Paul, and he needs to teach us about it. He wants us to understand clearly the truth about it. Paul says he wants the Jews to get saved. And in his day, the majority of them had rejected Jesus Christ. And just like we may look at this world and we want our family to get saved, the Jews were his family. And he knew they're not saved. They're dying and going to hell because they reject Jesus Christ as their substitute for their sin, the punishment that they deserve. And Paul says, it breaks my heart, but I don't have control over it, Paul says. He doesn't have control over it. So the first concession that Paul makes in this whole argument is that, man, I don't get to pick and I wish I did. And it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart. Verse 6, it is, but it is not that the word of God has had no effect. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are of the seed of Abraham. But, quoting the Old Testament, in Isaac your seed shall be called. Verse 8, that is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I shall come and Sarah shall have a son. So Paul is referring back to everything we have been learning as we've been going through Genesis about this promise about the seed of Abraham. And, and Paul says, he starts his explanation of this whole choosing and predestination topic. He starts his explanation by teaching us that God saving people is a miracle. God saving anybody is a miracle, and it shouldn't happen. It's impossible for God to save anybody. We are as good as dead, just like Abraham's old sweaty body. Remember, him? Remember Abraham's story? He was 100 years old. The Bible says his body was as good as dead. Great description of an old man. You know, when Abraham fell, he would have said, I've fallen and I can't get up. <laughs> Because he's that old guy in that commercial. Well, Abraham, 
Not that anyone had that experience this week, but <laughs> Abraham is this old guy. He could not have kids anymore, obviously. He's 100. Yet, God makes him a promise to do a miracle. And Abraham believes that, which made Abraham a child of promise. When Abraham chose to believe God's promise, Abraham became part of a miraculous event called salvation. That's what's very key for us to understand. Abraham got born again, basically, by believing a promise of God. He could have continued to just be a child of flesh and do things according to his flesh, but his flesh was incapable of obtaining the salvation. And God knew that. Abraham knew that. Abraham confessed that. And so now Abraham says, there's a different way. I'll believe your promise, God. I will believe you. He chose to believe this promise. So it didn't matter where someone was born or what they were called. Only believing made someone a child of the promise. That's the big deal is do you believe God? And Abraham teaches, this, teaches us this. So salvation is then a miracle, an impossible thing. It's supernatural thing. That happens when someone believes God's word or God's promise. Today, it's when someone believes Jesus, when he says, I will pay the price for your sins. When they believe that promise, they enter into the supernatural new life. That's the gospel. That's this. And so we get to verse 10 now. Paul still has a lot to explain. We're just, we're just laying the foundation. He says, and not only this, but when Rebekah had also conceived by one man, even our father Isaac, for the children were not yet being born and having done not any evil or good, that the purpose of God according to the election, according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. This is this really tricky part because people are like, wait a second. If they didn't do anything right or wrong yet, how could God say, I hate one and I love the other? Paul teaches us here that God's election is not based on works. It's really important to understand. God's election, God's choosing beforehand is not based on works, but it's based on something here called a calling or an offer. And God knows, because he's God and he has foreknowledge, who will receive that offer or that who will respond to that call. When you call someone on the phone, you are looking for a response, right? God is too. Have you ever been surprised when you call someone and they actually answer the phone? You're like, oh, um, I, I was just going to leave you a message, right? And some people answer and some people don't when God calls. And depending on whether, it, for you, if they do, maybe they don't answer your calls because they don't like you. Or, or maybe they don't think you're trustworthy. 
Or they might just be too busy with their life to answer your call. It happens in our life, and unfortunately, it happens with God also. God makes a call to every single person, and their response determines a lot. Verse 20, 12, Romans 9, it was said to her, The older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. You see, God says the response to this call determines your life and your eternal life. You will be blessed and experience this loving relationship with God if you respond to the call as Jacob pictures. Does Jacob do everything right? As we've been studying, Jacob is like a total goober. I mean, he messes up his family. He's, he messes up so much. But he has this God that will not let him go. This God will not stop. He comes back to Jacob over and over and over again and is like, Jacob, I love you. Jacob, I'm going to teach you how to trust me. Jacob, I'm not going to let go. How does Jacob get this good God and Esau gets this God that's just like, whatever, bud. How does, how does that happen? Because Jacob entered into this loving covenant with God when Jacob believed. When Jacob said, I need your help. And Esau never wanted that help. And God knew that. Jacob experiences this love. It's miraculous. It's impossible. It's a mystery, all the things that happened to Jacob. The way God treats Esau is totally normal. That's what you would expect a perfect God to treat a sinful human being like. Why would we expect anything different for all of us? It's the good, the mercy of God that's the miracle. That's how, how we should think. Esau is hated, and that makes sense. He's totally a rebel to, against God, and he hates everything that God loves. And Esau chooses to not believe God's promise, which he makes this conscious decision to reject God's call or God's offer for help, which is what everyone in this world does who decides not to follow Jesus. They say, follow, being a Christian is weak. You, you just, you, all you want is God's help. You're not even going to try to prove yourself worthy to God. And that's the problem, is yes, we do just accept God's help. And the world considers that weak. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is, God, uh, is there unrighteousness with God? This is the big question. Okay, so if some people are going to hell and some people are going to heaven and God knew that beforehand, is, is there unrighteousness with God? Does that mean God makes a mistake with all the people that are going to hell? And Paul says, certainly not. A, God never makes mistakes because he's God. But how do, how do we figure this out? He says, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills or him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Is God wrong to make his decision to save some people based on how they respond to this call? No, Paul says. That's a perfectly right way to make this decision. Because it's all God's mercy. I have in here underlined mercy, mercy, compassion, compassion, and mercy again in, that, in those two verses that we read, three verses. God says, I make my decisions based on mercy. 
and compassion. My love, how good I am. It's all God's mercy. He's doing a miracle to save some people. And he's laid out this perfect way for all to get saved if they would want it. And God says, I will show mercy, and that is the only way that people can get saved, is by mercy. They can't get saved, he says, by willing or by desiring or wishing. And they can't get saved by running, which is like working or, or trying. Only by responding to the call of mercy and depending upon it in faith can someone be saved. This is the clear instruction that we're getting here. God is right to do this. And it's the only way, Paul says, that he can save people. But you might say, but, but, if, God doesn't wa- but if someone doesn't want God's mercy, but they still want to go to heaven, how can, how can that be wrong? Because they need a miracle. That's impossible. And mercy is the miracle that saves people. But if you say, oh, I want to go to heaven, I want to be a good person, but I just want to do it through Buddha, or I just want to do it through Muhammad, or I want to do it my way, you are saying to God, I don't want your help. Because God said, I'll give you my help. His name is Jesus. And it's his death on the cross that is the only thing that can secure my mercy for you. And I know before, I know if you're going to do that or not. And that's the tricky part that's hard for us to understand. You see, if someone doesn't want God's mercy and they still want to go to heaven, how is that wrong? It's like trying to climb over an obstacle. You guys have seen those obstacle courses and basic training. Our brother Kieran is out at basic training right now, so keep him in prayer. Uh, I'm sure he's getting his butt kicked. But you get these, you get these obstacles, right? And I see them sometimes, the guys on the top, because it's like 20 feet tall, and they're trying to climb it, and they have to make these human ladders and stuff like that. Well, the last guy is always like reaching up, like, help me. And the guy is reaching his hand down to pick them up, right? Well, imagine if the guy on the bottom, he doesn't want the hand. He doesn't take the help. Is he ever going to get up there? And the answer is no. God is not wrong for offering help and showing mercy and compassion and doing a miracle to save people. He's not the one that's wrong. It's on us when we reject the help. That's where this goes bad. Uh, if you would turn with me to Mark, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 20. Jesus actually gives us a parable about, a parable about this exact subject. Is God wrong to offer help? Even though not everybody receives his help. Is God wrong? In Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 1, Jesus says this parable. He says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And now when he had agreed, which you can put in there, promised, because promise is our key word that we're always looking at when great with coming to grace, uh, with uh, the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And, when, and then he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you also go in the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you another promise. But hey, this promise sounds different than the first promise. The first promise, he spelled it out. Hey, I'm going to give you a denarius for a day's worth of work. 
The second promise is, hey, I'll just do whatever's right. But the cool thing is, it doesn't matter what the specifics of the promise are because the important thing is the one making the promise. When God makes a promise and you believe it, you enter into this relationship with him where you're depending on him and you're trusting in him. And so it's really cool that Abraham got saved by believing the same promise that we believe, but they sound different. Abraham's promise was, if you go into the promised land, I'm going to give you this promised land, you just follow me. That's a lot different than my promise sounds like if I believe in Jesus Christ, but they're actually the same thing because it's the same promiser making the promise and he's one God. So it's really neat how these things go together. Now, so they went in verse five. Again, he went out about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did likewise, just making promises. This guy's a promise making fool. Verse six, and about the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing idle and said to them, why have you been standing idle all day? But they said to him, because no one hired us. And he said to them, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will, you will receive another promise. So when evening had come, the landowner of the vineyard said to his steward, call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. And when those who were hired about the 11th hour, each received a denarius. We could call that heaven, salvation. But when the first came, they supposed they would receive more, and they likewise received a denarius. And when they had each received it, they complained against the landowner and said, these last men have worked only one hour, and you made them equal with us who have borne the burden of the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give to the last men the same as to you. Verse 15 is key. Is it not lawful for me to do as I wish with my own things? In other words, am I not allowed to make promises and do miracles? Am I not allowed to save dirty, rotten people? Look around the room. God is doing the same thing today. He says, is it not lawful for me to do as I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? Oh, there's the real question. He says, so the last will be first and the first last. For many are what? Called. But few are chosen. See, this just cleared up everything having to do with predestination and free will and all that. He says, I have put forth a call, but I know the people that respond to that and those are the chosen. It's very interesting. And all of this is because God is gracious. God is good. God is merciful. He wants to show mercy. He wants to save people. He is allowed to save people. He's allowed to call out a plan of salvation and then give the salvation, give his promise to whoever responds to the call. And he is not guilty of wrongdoing if men reject the call and don't respond. He is actually free from guilt. He does nothing wrong. The problem is with us and our eyes, he says, the way that you see stuff. That's the problem, Jesus says. He says, um, he says or is your eye evil because I am good? He says, don't you understand all this free will and predestination talk is because I'm good. I have saved certain people. I'm good. 
I'm doing what's right. Trust me. Jesus is so good and we have trouble seeing it. The problem isn't with God being good or evil. It's with us and our perverted way of looking at things. He is always good and right and perfect. So back to Romans chapter 9. Paul continues to teach us and he gets real deep now and he got, talks about Pharaoh. And he says, for the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this ra- very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills and whom he wills, he hardens. Very important for us to understand. God knew Pharaoh, but God knew Pharaoh. We'll call him Bob. Pharaoh Bob. And God looked through the annals of time and he said, Bob is a bad dude. Bob is very prideful and Bob is not going to accept my call. He's not responded. He will not respond to my call. How do you know? Because I'm God. I'm outside of time. I can see this. So God puts Bob as Pharaoh. Why? Because God wanted to show his power in Pharaoh. God wanted Pharaoh to be this antithesis of what we should be. He wanted Pharaoh to be strong against Moses so that God could say, I'm stronger and I will rescue my people no matter how hard this person is. So God, it says, hardened Pharaoh. He knew this heart of rebellion and that Pharaoh had rejected the call or would reject the call of Bob. So God raised him up to this position of power so that God's love and mercy toward his people who did believe could be contrasted with Pharaoh. And Pharaoh made his own choices to harden his heart. He, he was not predestined to fail. He made his own choices. And God used Pharaoh's choices to show his power and salvation for the people who actually did believe. And maybe you're thinking, well, I don't believe that Pharaoh made his choice. I mean, it just told us that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Well, we're going to open our Bibles real quick to Exodus. We're going to read a few verses to just help us see the progression. Exodus chapter 7, verse 13 is where we start. Exodus seven thirteen. But Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them, as the Lord had said. And then verse 22. Then the magicians of Israel did so with their enchantments, and Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them, as the Lord had said. And then chapter 8, verse 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart, and he did not heed them, as the Lord had said. And 8.19, then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God, but Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them, just as the Lord had said. Then chapter 9.7, then Pharaoh sent, and indeed none of the livestock of the Israelites was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh became hard, so that he did not let his people go. And then 9.34, and when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet more, and he hardened his heart, he and his servants. See, God's choice was clear. He made a call. 
he gave Pharaoh all these chances, proved himself over and over and over, and Pharaoh made his choice, which is consistent with what God knew was going to happen, which is why God made him the Pharaoh in the first place. God raised him up to make an example of him. God is saying, don't make this choice like Pharaoh. It doesn't end well when you do it like this. When God hardens his heart, God is merely confirming and agreeing with what Pharaoh has made his choice to be an enemy of God. God is saying, yep, that's the decision I knew you were going to make. That's why I made you the Pharaoh. Because I don't want anyone to make this decision. But since you're in this position, I have the right to do whatever I want with your life, so I'm going to make you the Pharaoh. How about that? Let me make you rich, powerful, so that when people see you and they see my judgment come upon you, they might fear and they might accept my call of salvation. Back in Romans chapter 9, verse 19. He says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? He says, but indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing form say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? So he's saying, if God already knows and chooses our lives. He already knows, and, and he knows who's called, and then he's got his chosen that are the ones that respond. Why does he send people to hell? I can't change who I am and the decisions I make. Is what some people will say. In other words, God made me choose to reject his call. It's God's fault, and I don't want that I don't want his help. Really, that's not true. Paul says, no, God saw your choice before time and he still gave you a life to live and even a position in this world so that he could be glorified and show his power through your bad choice if you're making the choice to not believe. You are the lump of clay that made your choice and God is still in control of how you, your life turns out. If you choose to reject the call to receive God's help, you get formed by God into an example of his power and his right to judge. If you choose to receive that call and believe the promise of the word of God, God forms your life into a picture of his grace, his love, and his mercy. This is Esau and Jacob. This is why we have Genesis chapter 36. Because Jacob's family, or Esau's family, descends into this pit of a whole nation of people who hate God. You see, the Edomites, Jacob was also called Edom because he had red hair. And so the Edomites come from Jacob and they're a whole nation that is the constant enemy of Israel and God's plan on the world. And then you have the Amalekites also come from the Edomites. And the Amalekites are horrible people who do human sacrifices all the time and hate God and, and fight against his people at every turn. And so we need to know why there's Edomites and why there's Amalekites and why there's people in our world who hate God. And why, do, why are they so strong? You can think politics. Why do we have people who hate God and, and is so strong in our country? It's because God is raising them up to make an example of them by the end. 
Why did God raise up Hitler? We'll get to that in a moment. What if God, it says here in verse 22, wanting to show his wrath and make his power known? Why would God want to show his wrath and make his power known? Is he some WWE fighter that's like, this is my wrath. Look at my power. Does he just want people to be amazed at his muscles? No. What do you think? After studying God's word in the book of Genesis and seeing his constant love, why do you think God wants his power to be known? Because he doesn't want people to go against him and to reject his call for salvation. Because he's saying, it's bad to be my enemy. I'm God. Get it. I am God, and I am strong, and you do not want to be my enemy because my enemies die. But I love you, and I've provided a way to you. I've made a promise to you. He's gone out at every time of the day, the 3 o'clock hour, the 6 o'clock hour, the 9 o'clock hour, even the 11th hour, and he constantly says, come back to me because I'm strong, and you don't want to fight against me. I know that you have this part of you that is my enemy called your flesh, but I can overcome it through my power, my word, and I want to. He says, what if God, wanting to show his wrath and make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, that he might make known the riches of his glory to on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory? So this lines up perfectly with God's potter-like working in all the lives of humanity. There's a reason why some people are in politics, some people have power, some people have influence, and some people don't. And it seems like a lot of us Christians don't. Why are we the scum of the earth? Why are we not as good speaking as other people? Because God is on our side. He already knows the ones who respond to the call, and he's long-suffering with the rebels. He even uses their lives to cause his power to be seen. The riches of his mercy shine so bright against the darkness of sin and rebellious men. And that's why some parts of the world are dominated by sin. It's so that where God, where people do respond to the call, it shines brighter in those places so more people can get saved. All this was planned before. How he would use your life and my life and Hitler's life for his glory. See, we're the only, this is the only philosophy, the Bible, biblical Christianity, is the only philosophy that actually sees value in Hitler, in suffering. Every other philosophy says suffering is merely a roadblock in our path to peace and prosperity and happiness. Only the Bible and only Jesus Christ says I raise them up for a purpose and I can use it powerfully in your life and in everyone's life in the world so that they can turn to me and receive salvation where good can come out of bad, where strength can come out of weakness. We are the only ones that have an answer that makes any sense at all. God knows all the pain that you go through and he has a plan on how he can use it. See, nothing is wasted for a believer of the promises. Nothing is wasted. Verse 24, Paul goes on. He says, even us whom he called. Remember, that word call, 
who he called, not of the Jews only, but of the Gent- also of the Gentiles, as he says in Hosea, I will call, call them my people who are not my people and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said of them, you are not my people. They shall be called sons of the living God, which is a, again, a miracle. He's saying that this call goes out and whoever believes the call gets a miracle where they become sons of the living God. We're not, we're humans. We are sons of the flesh. We're sons of Adam. But yet this miracle can happen where you become sons of the living God. It's amazing. Even Isaiah verse 27 also cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant or those who believe the promise or the call will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because the Lord will make short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabbath had left us a seed, which refers back again to the promise of the seed, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. In other words, he's saying the whole thing you need to worry about when you think about predestination and free will is that it's a miracle that anyone gets saved at all. It's a miracle. And it's always been by the seed or the promise that this salvation happened. The word of God being believed that leads to the salvation for the remnant, the people who believe. It wasn't for this promise. If it wasn't for this promise, we would all die in hell and burn like Sodom and Gomorrah, he's saying. It's this promise. So verse 30, what shall we say then, Paul says, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, have attained to the law, have not attained to the law of righteousness. Why, he says, verse 32, because they didn't seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law, for they stumbled at the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Paul ends this chapter by saying, whoever believes is chosen whoever believes god foresaw that they would believe and they were chosen and whoever stumbles or fails to believe says jesus is to i don't believe in jesus or i believe in science and this stuff over here i believe in this i believe in that that means they're stumbling and they're already cho- not chosen and that's a bummer But how do we know if you're chosen or you're not chosen? If you believe. The issue here is that Paul Paul closes with is the way to be chosen or the way to be elect. It's only by faith, he says. That's how to be elect. Israel wanted it so bad to be by the law, by doing things or by efforts. And there was a part of Israel that said, oh, I don't want it to be by the law. I just want it to be because I was born a Jew. That, that makes me elect. And Paul says, nope, never been that way. It was always only been by faith. God set up a system for saving people by faith alone where God does a miracle of giving righteousness or a new life or being born again to anyone, even worthless Gentiles, he's saying, who respond to the call by faith. How many of us are Gentiles? 
Praise the Lord. Serving bacon in the back. Glorious. <laughs> Anyone who responds to the call. See, we all come from cultures as Gentiles that were so pagan. Well, our cultures rejected God and did human sacrifices and sinned and sinned some more. But God wasn't done with us. And he put forth this call at the 11th hour in Denver, Colorado, and you respond, which shows that he, we're so glad that he goes out at the 11th hour and he doesn't stop us or he doesn't stop calling. He, he keeps this call out there. Anyone who just believed the call when it comes their way. So what is this call? Paul says here, it's like a rock. Paul says, it smacks you in the face. And Jesus is like a rock hitting you in the face. You can quote your pastor. You can write Jesus on a rock and throw it. No, don't do that. Don't do it. Figuratively, yes. Throw rocks at, no, but no. Jesus is this rock. If you believe in him, you believe the call. And no shame, it says, will come to you. But if you trip over that rock, you don't believe. You are put to shame, the Bible says. You'll be ashamed of that choice when you die. And you do not put your trust in what Jesus did on the cross for you. That's what that is. You do not see his death on the cross as the fulfillment of God's promise because you don't believe that God keeps his promises. That's the big problem. That's why Abraham was a child of promise because he's like, whatever God says, I'm going to believe it. And that's where we go as well. That's why we become children of Abraham. That's why they sing that song downstairs with the kids. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I'm one of them. And so can we close with that song? Just kidding. Um, how am I? I'm not Jewish. I got the awesome beard, but not Jewish. So how can I be this? It's, it's by faith. That's what the clear message is. God keeps his promises, and I've believed that. So I become a child of the living God. Is there anybody in here that's being smacked with that rock today? You feel like I've been up here, and I got a rock with Jesus' name on it, and I've been just tucking it at your face. And you're like, oh, gosh. I feel like I want to believe. But there's a part of me that's like, I don't need God's help. And religion sucks. And Jesus and church are full of hypocrites. Why would I want to do this? And then there's a part of you that's saying, but I want to believe in what Jesus did for me. Even if all these people drive me nuts and I can't stand them. There's a part of me that is hearing this call. And I, and I, and I want to respond. I would ask that you say, I believe, I'm hearing that call and I want to believe it. That you would talk to the Lord about that. And that you would raise your hand right now and say, that's me. So we're going to close our eyes and we're going to pray. And we're going to, um, I'm going to read this verse here, Luke chapter 12, verse 8. It says, I also, I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, him the Son of Man also will confess before the angels of God. But him who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. If you have this call in your heart right now and you have any part of you that wants to believe it, raise your hand 
and confess God before men. If this is something new in your life, I'm not saying everyone in here raise your hand, but if, if this is something new in your life and you feel like God is calling you out like, he's never, like you've never heard before, it may be that eternity past God foresaw this day that you would come into church and he foresaw that you would hear the clear message of the gospel and he knew that your heart would respond and so he has called you chosen and he is going to make you his, a son of the living God today. That's the offer that goes out. That's the call. Raise your hand now if you want to receive that. Well, I sure hope Every single one of us has done that. That's my hope and that's my prayer. Would you guys all stand with me as we pray? Jesus, you are so gracious to us. You're so merciful to choose us and know even though we're sinners and even though we, we don't um, even begin to know how to do what's right, Lord, you, you promised to save us if we would just believe your promise, your gospel, your good news. Lord, we, we rejoice and we, we're going to worship you now and we're going to take communion to remember what you did on the cross for us. And we pray that every single one of us would, would continue in that faith and would, would hold tightly to the promises that you make. And if we don't know those promises, I pray we would search your words, that we'd spend time abiding in who you are, Jesus, and trusting you, spending time in your word, reading, your, reading the Bible, Lord, studying it to show ourselves approved as being your children. Lord, we want to enter into this family and have family meetings together on Sunday where we can love our brothers and sisters and, and spend time with our great Father. In Jesus' name, we rejoice and pray, and everyone said, Amen. Amen.